Welcome to another episode of Lesson, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Scott Osmond. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you. Um, Scott and I offered a prayer before we started, and um, just that the Spirit would be here um, to be able to help Scott share the things that he has prepared and also to help me ask the right questions to draw out Scott's story and also for you, our listeners. Um, this is a unique podcast. Scott is, um, every podcast is unique. Um, Scott's 51. He doesn't look 51. I wish I could have a video <laughs> podcast when he walked through the home. He's younger than 51. So I think the California lifestyle has been keeping you young, Scott. Um, Scott is gay. Um, Scott's a return missionary. Um, Scott hasn't been too connected with the church for about 20 years until um, the stake president of the Long Beach East Stake and and a bishop of Scott's ward knocked on his door and in early January of 2019, and that resulted in Scott um, speaking in state conference about his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint, and it was a pretty brave talk you gave, um, and it was a wonderful chance for um, what the Long Beach East Stake is doing to potentially be scaled to other stakes. So if you're local a local leader, or a local member, and you you may hear things in this podcast that say, we could do that, and that would help us bring together. I think one of the things President First is talking about is creating Zion. And to create Zion, you have to have all your members feel like they're welcome, and he's really trying to do that. And Scott's nodding his Absolutely. head on the other side. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of this will just be Scott sharing his story um, growing up and just his journey and and where he's going and what um, experiences he's had with the church. So is that a fair introduction, Scott? Yeah, very fair. Yeah, especially the looks good for 51 part. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So tell us about your background, where you were raised, Scott. So I was raised in Sandy, Utah with two older sisters, uh, Linda and Renee, and um, a family dog named Bubbles. And uh <laughs> I have a, a strong Mormon family background. My um, mother uh, is Karen Christiansen Osmond, and she immigrated from Denmark with her family after World War II in 1948. And my mother's family came to Utah from Denmark to be closer to the Mormon temple, and, and my mother's grandfather was the first branch president of their city in northern Denmark, um, a city called Alpo. And... Um, and so I had a very strong Danish influence in my upbringing with her and her sister and, and her parents um, being straight from the motherland. And uh, my father, uh, his name is John Douglas Osmond, is American. And my father's family came from Pioneer Heritage. And several of his family members also immigrated from Denmark much earlier on before pioneering to Salt Lake City. My father's great-grandfather named John Lowe Butler was a bodyguard to Joseph Smith and apparently not a very good one. So, That's funny. <laughs> um, and, but in honesty, uh, Joseph Smith told the bodyguards to go home before he was executed to Carthage, Illinois by angry mobs, or at least that's what my father tells me. So, <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> um, so we have a very strong, uh, we have strong roots in the Mormon background and a lot of really large sacrifices were made by my forefathers to become and remain members of the Mormon church. Um, in my school background, 
I attended Mid Valley Elementary, which is home of the Chipmunks, Union Middle School, home of the Bobcats, graduated of, uh, from Hillcrest High School, home of the Huskies in 1985. And I was a graduate of University of Utah, home of the poor people and the youths. <laughs> I was very poor, um, but with a degree in accounting in 1993. That's great. Yeah. They're, so, re they're rebuilding Hunt, uh, Hillcrest High School. I, I our is, office is very close to it, and I see lots of construction over there. I, I don't know how you feel about your high school being rebuilt. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit uh, – I, I guess it, everything can be updated and um, – and I'm happy that they're getting, you know, such a facelift on it. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to see the old go away, but I I don't have a lot of fond memories of high school, as you'll find out. So okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Maybe that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, other than the teachers who I loved, actually, um, a lot of them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just to wrap off my school background, I also took a community tennis lesson in Sandy City Recreation at age 11. So I just wanted to be thorough. Um, but <laughs> Good. Tell us about your work background. So I moved to Long Beach, California in 1993, and I went to work for a Japanese public accounting firm um, who hired me out of school. And then I started my own financial accounting consulting business known as Osmond Consulting in 1997, which is thankfully still providing me a, a sound living. And, um, so and you've I've, been in, you've been, you've owned your own company for over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to believe when you put it that way, but yeah, um, I've been very fortunate and blessed and I've had, um, the opportunity of having clients that have uh, sent me worldwide, uh, all over the world to work, um, including a two-year stint in Midtown Manhattan. That's cool. And um, so I was able to maintain my residence in Long Beach while I did all of the traveling. But for about a 10 to 12-year period, I was traveling uh, away from Long Beach for 95% uh, of my time. So it was, but it, it's been a very good experience for me. Tell us about this family named Osmond. It's yeah. a very unknown Mormon name. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my family... Um, I'm joking on that, obviously. <laughs> are cousins to the famous Osmond family um, with Donnie and Marie Osmond. And um, while we were invited to a few reunions and weddings, our claim was that we were the poor side of the family, um, which is absolutely true. But um, but I felt often that I was defined by the first three things that people generally ask uh, when they first meet me. And as soon as I would say any two points of data, I'm from Utah, my last name is Osmond. So the third assumption was that I was Mormon. And, um, and any other two data points led to the other as well. So it was, it was kind of... Um, it was, it was always kind of difficult for me to, um, and, and sometimes still today is still difficult for me to follow it up with. And I'm gay. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily follow. Um, it sends doesn't, people yeah. for a loop. <laughs> so, yeah, I, that's good to know just your church background and I just, want our listeners to know just how much I, you know, before Scott and I 
I'm reflecting on our visit before Scott started to speak, just how deeply um, courageous this is for Scott to share his journey and, and some of the things he's experienced and um, how well prepared he is for this podcast and so how grateful I am that he's on here. So tell us more um, about your church experience, Scott. Sure. So I was lucky enough to serve and complete a Mormon mission in Denmark from 1996 to 1988. And um, and I served various teaching positions in the Mormon Church, including two and a half years in the bishopric of my singles ward wow. in Holiday, Utah. That's cool. And I remained an active member of the church in New York City uh, singles ward and in Long Beach, California until 2001. And just do some quick math for me. If you're rough, if you're 50, and that's that's roughly 20 years ago, so that was your between 30 and 35, you're active. So yeah. that's kind of when you stepped away. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I I did uh, enjoy my church positions, and I enjoyed um, serving in the church. That was always something that I really felt strongly about was was always a feeling that I got um it made me feel spiritually uplifted to be in the service of my fellow men and I gained a, a very strong testimony of that. Um but unfortunately my gay background got in the way of being able to <laughs> my gay background got in the way. <laughs> the uh the true uh or the full effect of that spiritual upliftment that uh, most people get. And so as far as my gay background goes, I, um, as a child, I was a very sensitive boy and I was a bit of a runt. Um, I was awkward at sports. I liked girly things like being in the kitchen with my mom and I fed oatmeal to a dolly at an early age. Thanks for just sharing this and being so honest and just owning it. I think this is great. Uh, I had an apron and a baseball hat that I wore, which was very confusing for my parents. Um, I, <laughs> I was an anomaly. Um, but, um, at five, at age five, I I went to a bus stop to go to school, and I was teased almost immediately by other kids. Wow. And they just could pick up on my insecurities. I, kids, kids can do that. Um, and I was repeatedly poked at and hit, and kids chanted and spit on me, and um, I was frequently beat up by neighbor kids, um, very bullied. Um, my father seemed especially frustrated with me when I came home crying after being beaten and teased by other kids um, as, I, as I was growing up. And he seemed frustrated that I wasn't fighting back. And so it made me avoid going to my parents about the bullying because I started to feel guilty for not having the tools to fight back or defend myself. And so I felt the only thing I could really do was just take the abuse. Wow. And so there were a lot of things that my family wasn't even aware of. They just knew that I would come home crying a lot um, and that I would be a very sad child for a lot of times. I felt very alone in the way I, um, in the way I was treated and that, uh, that treatment for some reason to me felt like it was deserved because I was different. 
Um, and I just tried to be around adults as much as possible to avoid the bullying. But um, as you mentioned in a talk that I, I recently gave at a state conference in the um, East Long Beach stake, I spoke about a bus driver who took pity on me and tried to at least give me some reprieve on the bus ride to and from school, which um, seemed to really speak to people in a way because it was um, it was a way for people to identify maybe just um, and for me to kind of compare in my life what being gay meant to me. It meant that I was less than and that I was um, was deserving of some of this bullying. And I wanted them to, I, I wanted people to identify just how that felt and how alone that could, you know, that could be. I think most every child has gone through some stage of bullying or somebody saying something mean to them. And so I, I think my experience really spoke to people and I was very grateful for, for the response that I received from the membership at large after that talk. But, um, I was, as a child, I, I think the term gay was defined for me as someone on TV who liked to cross-dress and someone who was flamboyant, had swishy hips, wore a purse. Uh, that's what I saw on the news. And while I um, uh, today you know, have absolutely enormous respect for anybody with a transgender issue, I knew that that was not my situation. I didn't really want to become a girl or have a change in who I was as far as sexual identity goes. I just wanted to be me uh, without a lot of, of bullying and a lot of teasing. And um, so... You know, I think that was often reinforced those images on TV by my family who, you know, made fun of those people. And I immediately knew from a very early age and from my own religion that being gay was a horrible thing and that to be gay was considered to be a sexual perversion. And so, you know, you just wanted to completely avoid any kind of sign of that whatsoever. And uh, it was, you know, not until much later in life that I identified the words sexual orientation, sexuality, and sexual perversion as different things yeah, for explain me. Explain that for our listeners. Um, I just found that anything to do with sexuality, uh, whether it was orientation as to who you are, whether you find yourself to be male, female, whether you uh, find uh, sexual um, orientation at, at, or your sexual identity, whether that was transgender or whether that was um, uh, non-transgender um, or intersex or whatever uh, conditions there may be, I, I found that to be uh, all lumped in the same bowl in our in in what. I felt like my religion was telling me, and that was, you are who you are, and there is no room for error. You have always been that. You will always be that, and and you will never be gay. You will be tempted with things that 
may be termed as some same-sex orientation um, or attraction, but you, uh, it's not a condition. It's, it's just uh, a temptation. It's helpful. And I... So uh, eventually I became familiar much later with those things. But what happened was that, um, as I spoke of in my talk in the state conference, this, um, these things that happened to me within my religion and what they were telling me who I was and also the, the bullying um, in general, where they were creating this monster in my head. And, um, and this monster was just telling me that I was non-deserving of happiness and I was non-deserving of love. And that if anyone showed me love, then I was just incredibly lucky. Um, and I was always very, very grateful that I had my mother because she loved me very much unconditionally no matter what, no matter when, all throughout my life. And I believe that's the case also from the rest of my family, but there have been reactions to things that I've done or where I've, where I've been in my lifetime that have made me feel rejected in certain ways, but never by my mother. And I just want to stress how, um, how important that was for me because without that, um, there's no way I'd be here today. I just wouldn't. And so, meaning you would have died by suicide. Yeah, it it was it was so overwhelming. If, if you've got this monster in your head, you can't talk about being bullied. Everything you're hearing about your orientation makes you feel broken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the monster almost in certain ways became my friend. <laughs> um, because it was a way for me to be able to, I always knew it would be there in some really horrible kind of messed up way. And, um, it was the one consistent other than my consistent thing other than my mother's love. And it was my mother's love that combated that monster in my head. Um, and so, you know, and, and looking back, I, I did actually visualize this monster. I don't know if you remember Gossamer on Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes. I re no, I don't, but okay. I remember the shows. Yeah. Uh, he was this big, you know, heart-shaped furry monster. His name was Gossamer and Bugs Bunny, um, uh, interestingly enough, did his hair and nails um, on the show. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just, I kind of had that kind of feeling that Gossamer, even though he was a monster, was somehow a little bit lovable as well. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, um, and kind of fun. But uh, I'll, I'll maybe get into that a little bit later <laughs> as to how, why that's kind of helpful to know. But I, I also had um, some of my most horrible experiences happen within the church walls. And, um, and some of my harshest memories were attending Aaronic priesthood meetings where the teacher who was present just allowed the bullying to take place without any kind of 
intervention whatsoever. Wow. Did this even happen in primary? Do you have feelings of primary also being un, unhealthy for you at times? Um, yeah. So back when, you know, back in the day, um, when I was young, I <laughs> primary was on a Wednesday and we would go straight from school to primary. And then we were kind of unsupervised on the grounds of the church building before primary started. And so there were um, times where we would either be in the foyer or waiting for the doors to open to the chapel so we could start the general meeting. And um, I remember, you know, just before even that happened, they were playing Smear the Queer out on the lawn, and I was typically, you know, the queer. Um, and, uh, and then getting into the foyer, I remember, you know, having this really horrible, horrible um, interaction with some kids who just absolutely terrified me to no end and um, pinned me up against a wall and, and just just, you know, we're ruthless. Wow. Um, and, uh, it was, um, it was, it was mortifying. Um, I am aware of some of the words you're choosing and I would honor those words, terrifying, mortifying. Yeah. And I just can't imagine what it's like to be, I mean, you're 51 and you have better context, but at that age, I mean, I think those words are appropriate and helps our listeners to understand how difficult that is and that we need to do better on bullying. And smear the queer is a, is a phrase that shouldn't exist in our vocabulary in any language, in any part of the world. There's no doctrine that would support what the feelings, what's happening to you. So thanks for sharing some of that. Thank you. Um, and I recognize that these are things that happened a long time ago. Um, but I don't think I'm the only person that has probably experienced some of this and it kind of all adds to the, um, the feeling that you can't really be, um, fully spiritually fulfilled within church when someone is, or some people, um, or kids or, or the teachers or whatever are allowing these things to go on. You would hope um, me being grown now, you would hope that that would never happen again. You would hope that the teacher, you know, would, would make sure that that was a place that you could, where everyone could be spiritually edified and that there was no, um, yeah, that, that it was, it was just not a space or a place that for that kind of thing to happen. And, but I, I, it was part of my existence. It was part of my background. And, um, and I had, uh, later gone to this teacher who ended up being a bishop of our, our ward when I got back from my mission. And I asked him why he allowed that to happen because I was really kind of trying to understand it better. I was trying to give, I was trying to forgive and, I wanted to forgive. I wanted to let all of that go. And what I really wanted him to say was, I'm sorry. And instead, he had no apologies for it. And he said that he did it to toughen me up and that I really needed to just, you know, buck up. And uh, here I am and today, and, you know, I made it through it and I'm a stronger person for it. And he was trying to show 
why his methods were uh, justified. Um, and I never really got that closure on that experience for me. Um, I, I feel that today it's a learning experience and not something I hold on to so much. But, and, and there are other experiences that I feel were just as horrifying, uh, to be honest. But I just use that as an example to be able to help people understand when, when you are already being minimalized, when you already feel broken, and you are, and and then an adult decides not to take action it reinforces that position so much stronger because it tells you that you're not even worth that person's time to get involved and um and be protected and so it was it was a really horrible experience for me just a comment there i appreciate you sharing that and i i think we are strong enough as a church and if any of our listeners don't know me, I'm a fully believing member, support and sustain our church, but my confidence in our church helps me to be able to look inward and say, what can we do better? So I'm fine hearing this story. I think it's part of becoming the body of Christ we need to be. And I look at the world is so hard right now, and it's so difficult that church has to be the balm of Gilead. It has to be a place of healing for a primary age kid to a 99-year-old, everybody needs to feel peace and hope and healing. And and a bowling experience is not obviously part of that. And one of the things that Scott and I talked about before we went live is a feeling that Scott um, has come recently to Scott after listening to a podcast by Kate Toronto that Scott probably has PTSD. Yeah. And so... Scott may talk, I think Scott will talk about that. We'll come back to the end of the podcast, but just, you know, keep this experience Scott just shared in the back of your mind, listeners, because I think it'll sort of paint a little bit of what's one of the things Scott's come to learn is that this has resulted in PTSD for him um, regarding his journey with the church. And even though he loves the church at some level, and it's also had an, enough of these difficult experiences that it's resulted in in p- real life PTSD for Scott. So just hold that near break your brains as you're sharing as Scott's sharing his story. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inserting that. Um so yeah, I uh each instance really just kind of made that monster more powerful for me. And I the the way I thought I was going to get around this was I thought I was just I just need to be the best little boy in the world. I just need to try harder and that with each blow, um, I just, if I were, if I were a little more faithful, if I was a little bit better, if I, if I didn't tease my sisters, if I didn't, you know, and that was never going to happen. I tease them all the time, but I, (laughs) I, you know, maybe that was, you know, reverse bullying in some cases. If you ask them, I don't know I'm sure they would agree to that, but they were older, they could take it. But I, (laughs) I did feel that, uh, that if I was able to control, uh, everything I did and be the perfect little kid, then God would somehow bless and protect me from all of this um, torment that I was going through. And so um, I also felt guilty for having any kind of sexual thoughts going through my head because I was convinced 
that this was because I was not uh, maintaining a clean kind of mind and that I was I wasn't exercising my faith and and that I was weak um, spiritually. And so I studied pamphlets written by Boyd K. Packer and all kind of information that I could get my hands on regarding sexuality from the church. I know many of your podcasts have mentioned prior publications, including the Miracle of Forgiveness and others that have been, you know, they have also experienced a very damaging effect from some of these uh, doc, uh, some of these um, publications. And I, uh, I think that one thing we can all agree on, um, no matter who you are, if you are a person who has any kind of LGBTQ uh, experience within the Mormon church, you are probably more well-versed and more well-read than any person in the Mormon church uh, by age 14. And that you are clinging to every word and you are probably highlighting every word in your mind and trying to create some kind of cross references. And, and, you know, some of that stuff is so cryptic uh, that you don't even know what it is. You just know that you're, you know, you're a horrible person for it. And so it's, it's really, um, it's, I think that is, to strengthen your point, I think that is something that creates a lot of PTSD for a lot of people going through the LGBTQ experience. And, um, and so I, yeah, I, I felt like the, um, the sin was just, uh, sometimes overwhelming and that it was just not my, my faith was just lacking. And so in my adult years, I, um, I went into my mission, um, and I, I grew much closer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have absolutely no regrets in serving my mission. I am thankful for my mission to no end. I would never do it again, but I am thankful for it. And it taught me so much, um, just to be selfless in the service of other people and how important that is, um, in my life in general and, um, and to feel joy from that. And so, um, before I went on my mission, I, I was about 16 and I'd asked my parents at one point if I could maybe get therapy. I, I was very depressed as a kid and I just didn't really know what to do when I had heard about this therapy and, you know, saw it on TV and I just thought, Hmm, you know, maybe this could be something that could help was me. Was it conversion therapy or just general therapy for depression? I, I was just thinking general therapy. Okay. Yeah. And my father told me that I should just go on a mission and that that would be my best therapy, um, which was kind of rich because he went on a mission to the Los Angeles, uh, Southern California region. Um, and, you know, he <laughs> has all kinds of stories about, you know, people not being there for the right reasons and stuff. So it was, but I, I, I kind of understood what he was saying. I think it was more that he didn't have, we didn't really have the money or the financial resources for therapy. Uh-huh. I think he kind of viewed it that way too. Um, and I would probably agree with that, 
But um, I just felt like because of all of this stuff going into it, that I felt like my mission was going to be my cure. I was 100% certain that was going to be my cure. And um, that was going to be the place where I could be the best little boy in the world. I could be, you know, 24 seven, a missionary, and I could be working on just, you know, serving the Lord. Um, it really was my last hope. And so one year into my mission, um, I realized that I had only one year left and, uh, it wasn't just a sudden thing. It was a build. And I, uh, went through this kind of mental breakdown and I didn't really even know what it was. And I just ended up in the hospital and I, I just was not able to breathe. And I, I just had a horrible anxiety attack and I, um, was there for a few days and, um, and I just realized that I was no, I was nowhere near the cure. I thought if I've one year into this and I'm still feeling the way I feel, I, in fact, my feelings of being gay were stronger than ever, um, more frustrating than ever. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And I thought that really, I don't have a lot of hope that this mission is going to actually do what I thought it was going to do. Um, which, you know, was really my main goal. Um, and so I, I was seeing myself as a failure because I not only were Denmark was the lowest baptizing mission in the world. Um, and you know, nobody there wants to hear about religion or at least in that time period, they just didn't I don't want think to it, hear. I think it's pretty hard mission too. Still, you're right. <laughs> yeah. It just, I mean, it, it was, it was very difficult to get people to open up about religion. So there wasn't a lot of success on that front. And if I couldn't fix myself, then why was I there? What was it that, you know, I was doing wrong? Was my faith still lacking? It had to be me. It couldn't be anything the church was teaching. It couldn't be anything about, you know, uh, sexual orientation not being changeable. It had to be me. And so what was it doing? What was I doing that was such a lack of faith? And, you know, I just, I wish I could go back. A lot of our listeners wish they could go back and just give you a big hug on your mission at one year in, in Denmark and hear you, you know, just, that's a really tough spot to be in. And just to think that everything you're feeling is your fault. And I can certainly connect the dots in my mind why, you know, after a year, um, you know, a lot of missionaries after a year looking forward to the future, um, they realize They've got a year under the belt, a year left, and all their hopes and dreams are intact, but you're having to face what you'd hoped would change isn't changing, and you're still, your orientation's hardwired into you. And I think in, as we're recording this podcast in 2019, we understand that, but you're back in, you know, this is 30 year, 20 plus years ago, and it's just a really tough spot to be in. And I wish we could have done better. I wish we, you know, could have seen better. Society was certainly making these assumptions, but some would say, you know, I wish our church leaders weren't making the some assumptions and we had kind of gotten ahead of the curve here and lifted your burden back there. And I don't know how to reconcile that. You know, I just recognize, but I, and so my reaction is not necessary, is to honor your pain 
I think that's the best thing I do as a committed Latter Saint is not dismiss your pain, to sort of keep everything cognitively safe for me. I think my responsibility is to hear your story and validate all the pain and recognize what a difficult spot you're in. Because that's the only way I think we can help heal each other is to validate people's stories and to hear their pain. And that's a really tough spot. And so it makes sense to me. A mental breakdown to me isn't a sign of weakness, Scott. It's a sign of the reality of your situation. And it's like a box that just keeps closing in. There's no sides and the sides just keep closing in. And so anyway. Yeah, (laughs) I, I agree. And when you say honor your pain, it resonates with me because what you're really talking about is actively listening to my story and identifying with it in a way that can't be done topically. And when you have these podcasts with other people, what you're really doing is you're getting people to actively listen to that pain and to those struggles. And by doing that, it really is the only way I'm familiar with, um, especially recently, that um, wounds that you don't even know exist can sometimes heal and they can become soothed and they become a balm for those wounds that go really deep. But I, I, I resonate with that a lot. Thanks. Yeah. So keep telling us about your mission, your mission president. I don't know if you came out to him or her, if they were helpful or how you navigated that. I, you know, I loved my mission president and, uh, and his wife, they were, they were so dear to me through this whole one year in type of thing where I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. And they never did come out to them. Um, even though he had a son, they had a son themselves that was gay. Um, I, I don't think I was aware of that at the time, but I was, um, I was not comfortable telling them that. And they just knew that I was horribly conflicted. Um, and that I was struggling and they wanted to do everything they could to help me um, fulfill my mission because it was so important to me. I, I knew I was, you know, grasping at some things that uh, I was grasping with some things that I and struggling, but I didn't want to go under. I didn't want to go home. That was the last thing I wanted to do because then I would have been a failure. I know that I would have viewed myself as beyond help if I didn't get to the very finish line. And so they were so kind and loving and helping me get there um, and um, and taking me under their wing from time to time to just say, you know, it's okay. Um, if you need to cry, just cry. Uh, and so it was uh, a lot of my pain and anguish was masked under other things that were happening around me. But the root of it was always that, you know, here I am, I'm gay, and I, and I don't even know what to do with this. It's not getting better. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I, I fell into a pretty deep depression after my mission. And um, I, my mission president gave me a, a blessing before I left uh, back home again. And he, he said something very specific and he he told me to, I I expected him to say, you know, uh, date and get married and everything as soon as you can or whatever. I don't know. And instead he paused and he said, just wait, 
and take your time. And I, I know that he was really speaking from the spirit when he gave me that blessing. And it gave me some kind of comfort in knowing that someone else understood that I needed time to deal with this and reconcile this, whatever was going on. And so, um, so yeah, I, I tried to start uh, dating women and romantic relationships in my singles ward and, and elsewhere. Um, and I was feeling um, every time like I was playing with someone's feelings and that I was doing something that was unfair to them. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I just felt, um, I felt like it wasn't for me to put them through this. That um, while I dated um, some really just incredible women uh, who were very kind and loving, they deserve to be loved in every way, and I couldn't love them in every way. Um, I could love them as a friend. I could love them and appreciate them for who they were, but I couldn't love them as a husband and as um, as someone that they deserved. And so I was continuously conflicted with that because I just knew that uh, I would never find anybody as long as I felt the way I did. And it made me sick to my stomach just thinking about it and, and dating these people and continuing relationships, knowing full well that this was just not going to happen and that I was kind of trying to be in this kind of guinea pig situation for my own spiritual well-being, which just, it didn't feel right to me. Um, and so I... Um, I teamed that up with some temple experiences that I had where it was just so negative for me. Um, the temple was a place where I was hoping that I would feel the love of God um, in, a, in a profound way. And by the time I got to the celestial room, I had the monster in my head telling me, you don't belong here. You're not worthy. Wow. Um, don't kid yourself. Wow. And it made me terribly emotional because this was supposed to be where I would feel God's presence and love. And I felt none of it. I felt the love of my family and the support of my family, but I didn't feel God's love. I felt conflict and I felt like I just wanted to leave and get out of there as soon as I could. 
um, that was also teamed up with a really unfair experience with a state president of mine who sent me on my mission, who was very new to his position. I believe in my mind that he saw me as um, less than. And he told me that I needed to commit to covenants in his office that were just as holy as any covenant that he I was making in the temple. That I would not do certain things anymore. Um, he was harsh. He had kind of this southern accent that, you know, every time he said son, it felt like he was piercing my heart. And it was a lot to take on. Throughout my mission, throughout my temple experiences, I heard this voice. He had convinced his high councilman to yell amen at the end of every meeting and every talk. It was very militant. It wasn't what I needed in my life. I needed to feel love. I needed to feel understanding. I needed to feel somebody like you, somebody like President Fersh. And so I'm not sure why I didn't become bitter towards the church because I think I had a lot of reasons to. I feel like I had a lot of experiences to say, you know what, that bad far outweighed the good. Um, but I attribute it again to my mother, who really did teach me unconditional love and that good people can do bad things. Um, and that it was important for us to forgive. And so I... I really think that was, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't turn completely bitter towards the church and that I was able to, at some point, just say, well, the church isn't perfect. People aren't perfect. And, and, and that, you know, my experiences can somehow, I can move on from those. So I, I, I feel like there was a lot of I'm I'm in the celestial room with you, Scott, right now, and I'm thinking quite a bit about that. You did a great job of articulating that, and I think five years ago I would have, before I talked to more stories, I probably would have tried to reconcile that and maybe even suggest you shouldn't feel that way, and I would never do that now. I sat in the celestial room yesterday. I had a great experience there, so it's easy for me to say, Scott, you should have had a great experience there. The thought that comes to my mind is that's on us. That's on the bullying you felt. It's on the narrative that who you are is a mistake. It's that you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough to make more deals with God, to be more righteous. And that's on us. And what? And and I think it's on us. And I say that is just the institutional side of the church and the members. And and we created 
this monster in your head that allowed you to have the kind of experience that you were deserving of had. Scott, you just served two years. You gave two years of your life to serve the people of Denmark. You've been doing everything you know how to be. You know, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of rebellion in you. There seems like everything you've been doing up and is to try to do the right thing. And so I just think that's on us. I think I believe that God would have wanted you to have the kind of experience that I felt yesterday as I was in the celestial room. You were you're just as worthy as I was. I am whatever. I'm mixing up my, you know, my experience yesterday with your experience. And I would think God would have wanted you to felt that, but you just weren't able to. I wasn't. And that's not because of you, that's on us. And so I think we just have to look inward and say, how are we going to heal people like you? Um, and how are we going to improve so that church is the balm of Gilead? And how can we take your experience and learn from it, not be activated by it, not think this is a attack on our church, but a chance to look inward by you bravely sharing your story and, and, your, and what President Frisch is doing by including you that's helping us grow. So that's a pretty inflected, you know, that's just a, that's a pretty interesting part of your story for me as a celestial room and that experience. And I admire you not being bitter. It would be very logical to just be bitter forever about the experiences you felt in the church. And it's interesting that the love of your mom is one of the big differences there. Just somebody had loved you. So keep well, sure. uh, Yeah, I, I appreciate you respecting my feelings. And I recognize that, that those, those words would be hard for a lot of members to hear um, and hard for them to understand even. But um, I just felt like I needed to deliver the context before maybe your listeners could understand why. Good. And I, I think that the, um, yeah, I, I, I think that generally speaking, what you're saying is absolutely right. That. Um, there, uh, there. I do believe there are ways that we can get there together, and that we can help people through these kinds of experiences. Um, and I think again, active listening is key, and respect for the person's experience, um, and for the person who's experienced to learn how to respectfully deliver the experience, so that it's not a criticism to the person they're talking to but it's a it's a, a it's a review of what they've been through and i was just going to mention but i probably can't find it very quickly is um an article published by ian cock who's an, an lgbtq ally in atlanta lds living just published an article and he talks about the importance of listening, and he's listened to hundreds of LGBTQ stories, and he talks about the very things you share. So, yeah, keep sharing your story. It looks like you went to um, church social services. I did. Um, so I, I resigned myself to, to yeah, LDS social services uh, after my mission and after going through these experiences of trying to date women and uh, they had eventually referred me to a psychiatrist who they worked with who uh, turned out was a reparative therapist. And, um, and I 100% trusted that process. Um, 
not realizing that that process was horribly broken. Um, and uh, for several years, I was being told to have these kind of sexually driven tests that, with women who I dated. And that I was told that I, I placed women on a pedestal and that I was... Um, and that I was depressed because I, I wasn't giving uh, women, uh, putting women in their rightful place uh, in my life. And so he placed me on a myriad of drugs um, for depression and anxiety. And at one time I was on six medications at the same time, and they were constantly being adjusted up and down. And the same time, I was still going to the University of Utah trying to uh, continue my studies and my head was just constantly in the clouds. I, I didn't know whether I was coming and going. And I just trusted this process would somehow make me better, somehow resign me to helping me. You know, uh, again, the more the mission didn't work and praying didn't work and fasting didn't work. But, you know, professional help, that will work. That's my last, that's my last chance. Um, and... I guess what happened was that throughout my past experiences of being gay, I've been told so many things as to why I'm gay, that I'm that it is due to sexual perversion, it's due to masturbation, lack of faith, fast and pray that gay away, or it's because I'm selfish, or because there's a lack of a strong father figure, or there there are effects of, you know, a loving over-loving mother or that I'm not gay, I'm just SSA. And and uh, it just felt like somebody was throwing darts at a dartboard just to see which one would stick. The, the idea that this was all caused from something other than just me being who I am was never really uh, brought to light until uh, just even recently within the Mormon church. And I had to find that eventually on my own. And so I, uh, I, I, I did uh, happen to see recently that there was this amazing website um, on Je churchofjesuschrist.org where they have really updated their approach and their understanding to sexual orientation. And I think that's the wonderful thing about you know, what we're talking about today is that there has been enlightenment. No doubt there has been enlightenment. And they recognize that sexual orientation and sexual identity does not change. Um, and that we shouldn't expect it and we shouldn't require it. Um, it's what? a big step. Yeah, well, it's a huge step. When I look at what you went through before we got to that stage, that's such a big difference. It is. It's a huge difference. It is. And I, I feel, in some ways, I feel a lot of hope from that recognition because I do see growth and I see understanding. Um, I think that, you know, um, I, I think that the membership at large is growing and understanding. And I, I think that they, they recognize that there have been these duplicitous meanings and, and the way even that uh, certain policies, church policies were in the past, 
They were interpreted differently based on who was the leader at the time, their state president, their bishop, whoever, uh, their, their priesthood counselor, and, and the timing of it. I mean, you know, going from, you know, just get married um, and everything will fix itself uh, all the way up to what is now the policy of today is to, you know, not encourage that uh, sexual orientation will change based on, you know, and, and that the feelings will decrease based on that marriage. Um, so there has been some definite growth there. And um, so, yes, I, um, I feel like it's going to take time for these other, or for these new approaches to get distributed to the membership at large, because um, right now I'm I'm really uh, I'm I'm seeing this within the leadership uh, uh, counseling services, but I'm not seeing it directly as directly stated uh, within the general membership uh, websites, and so I'm hoping that that will get dispersed eventually to the rest of the membership so it's so clear because it couldn't be clearer on on the leadership mem uh, website as to how to counsel or how they can counsel people with same-sex attraction or differences with sexual orientation or identity um, and and I'm sure that you being a bishop you know you've seen those differences and those changes being pretty dramatic as well yeah but I agree that it's it's, you know, I, even when I first started to meet with a couple of gay men in my ward, Scott, I didn't understand all the things the church was teaching. Mm. We are, I think, it, I think sometimes we can improve as an institution of a church to talk about things that we no longer teach. We sometimes don't do that. We just talk about, you know, how it is today, but we don't sort of dispel past teachings. And I think we can mature as an institution to church to say, to do that. And I think it would heal a lot of people to say, you know, we recognize that what we've taught in the past has caused people pain. And we recognize that we've not been perfect in the past. And Elder Uchtdorf can do that. To me, that doesn't mean we, I don't believe in our past leaders and our prophets or sustain them. I think it's part of just institutional maturity to be able to say that it is the restored church, but institutionally, we sometimes don't match our doctrine. And so I think we could heal people if we acknowledge that. Um, and I hope, absolutely, I hope as a, as our church matures, we're able to do better with both of those. I I totally agree. And the one thing I'd like to add to that as well is that I think that it's not enough to just uh, say, you know, I'm going to throw out my miracle of forgiveness, and you know, just so it doesn't cause any anguish. Um, those materials still exist somewhere. They exist in grandparents' homes, and believe you me, if there is an article or something that someone who's LGBTQ that they can study and read, they will get their hands on it um, to try and put more meaning into what it means for them. So I, I don't think that these past policies or understandings should be glossed over. I think they should be recognized as being part of our past. And I think they should be addressed so that kids understand, and especially youth, understand that these are things that happened in the past but are not currently what is taught. 
and they may hear it, they may read it, but we don't do that today. And I, I think that's really important. I agree. Um, but I, I do appreciate your past uh, m- mention of things like the miracle of forgiveness and the timing of it and, you know, why it was maybe appropriate for the time and things like that. I, I understand, you know, trying to bring that in, but I, I just wanted to say, I, I think those materials will be around for a very, very long time. And so they can be dangerous in a way. Yeah, I agree with that. I had miracle forgiveness in my office as a YSA bishop, and it wasn't until some LGBTQ people pointed out to me some of the content in that book um, that was very, that wasn't what we taught today. Yeah. <laughs> and, and damaging that I recognized, wow, you know, there may be some things that I liked in there, but I think that's a good example of where I just didn't understand how something I could give to somebody could actually add to their burden. Sure. And so I think, you know, that's very helpful. Well, so um, I, I just wanted to also bring up when we're talking about the past, how uh, something was very important in my past, which was in California, we had Proposition 22 in the year 2000. And uh, the Proposition 22 was the Defense of Marriage Act. It was essentially a precursor to Proposition 8, which was the um, the uh, gay marriage uh, proposition in California that the Mormon church got uh, heavily involved with um, on a political level. And, and the reaction in my local ward for Proposition 22 was very difficult. And the reason was because we had multiple people who were still actively attending our ward who were openly gay, including uh, a couple who were partnered and obviously couldn't marry, but they were uh, living together and they were very much a couple. Um, And we felt together that there was a change um, that happened within the general membership uh, where we were, you know, really accepted and, and, and people seemed to really enjoy us. It was almost kind of this progressive type of feeling that, you know, if you're gay, you, you can come here and you'll be welcomed. But after Proposition 22, it felt more like that changed. And whether that was perceived or it was actual, I think either way, um, I, I, I don't think it was a total, totally just us perceiving it that way. I think that there was a general change coming down from the the pulpit saying that they needed to support proposition 22 with any ways or means that they could and so i found that to be a really tough thing to do um, to maintain uh and, and sustain my membership within the mormon church at that point and uh we um at the same time, uh, for about uh, a little over, I'd say, three years, um, there was a group that was meeting in the L.A. stake, and it was hosted um, by Howard Anderson, who was the stake president and at the time, and he, it was called simply the third Friday of the month group. And what he did was he said, well, you know, I don't 
really know who these people are. I have a lot of them in my stake, LGBTQ people. I'm going to invite them to the Relief Society room every third Friday of the month, and we're going to have a little fireside, and I'm going to get to know them. Um, and I remember going to the first few meetings, and he was this very large guy, you know, just such a great guy, huge stature, very popular within, you know, his community at, at large because he was, well, first of all, he was just very well off. He owned all these radio stations, but he had a large voice. He had a large stature and he was a fun guy, but he was also um, reserved in a way. And, you know, he would sit there in front of the meetings and his arms would be crossed and he would just kind of sit there and wouldn't say a word. He opened the meeting. We closed the meeting you know, we had, you know, somebody, a guest speaker, we talked about our experiences, much like you do with your podcasts, and, uh, and, and have some kind of spiritual enrichment from it. We had the most amazing music you've ever heard in that room. The spirit was so strong, it was palatable. And anyone who visited could feel it. And it was, it was an amazing thing. We had church leaders that were visiting as well. Um, and so over the course of several months, he started to uncross his arms and he started to, uh, talk to us more and to open up. And he started joking and, you know, talking about the gays and he would laugh and he, you know, just had kind of this, this feeling like, yeah, he's starting to really get to know us. He, and he enjoys it and he, and he did. He, he had fun with it. We had fun with it. Um, there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt associated with LGBTQ issues. And those of us who have survived it, I think, have, have done so in a lot of ways by using humor to get around it and to get through the pain. And I think he enjoyed being around us. And, um, and so, yeah, he was told several times by church uh, authorities in Salt Lake that he needed to close it down. And he shared that with us. And he said that he wasn't going to close it down because when he asked them, are you telling us that, are you telling me that I'm not responsible for the spiritual well-being of these souls in my stake? And they said, no. He said, well, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to get to understand their issues. He actively listened to those people and it made a difference. And he changed, he physically changed from the outset. We could see he physically changed and how he understood our issues. It's so important, active listening, it's just so important. And so uh, he was removed from stake presidency. Uh, they brought in a new stake president. Uh, they tried to close it down at that point. He got special permission. He was good friends with the new stake president, and he got special permission from that stake president to continue the meetings, which they weren't very happy about. <laughs> um, and we did that for another six to, months to a year before church uh, LDS social services came in and said that they were holding our last meeting and that this was going to be under the auspices of the LDS social services rather than um, at the stake level because there were so many people attending from other stakes. Um, and they, they didn't feel like since he didn't have jurisdiction over those stakes, that that was going to be handled differently. 
that was around 2001, and they took our names and addresses, um, email addresses, and we were never, they never contacted us again. Mm-hmm. We were all, uh, we, we probably had close to 200 people attending those meetings and um, in, in total. So it was, it was a very hard thing for us as a group because there, we felt like we were just discarded. And um, so it, it, it left a lot of wounds and it left a lot of people bitter at, at, at the end, unfortunately. And so what I did personally after that happened was um, I, I had uh, decided that I needed to find some outside support that I could no longer rely on the church to give me my spiritual fulfillment and that um, this going to church every week felt like I was batting my head against the the door and I was just uh, getting a bloody head over this. I, uh, I, I couldn't walk away without feeling like somebody had just made me feel worse than when I walked in. And so I found some therapists who help me understand the importance of distancing myself from painful feelings and memories rather than live them in my day-to-day life. And that's why when you mentioned Cape Toronto's podcast, Podcast 132, highly recommend it. Absolutely. If you don't even listen to my podcast, please listen to hers. It's so important and it's so integral integral to the community at large for both Mormons, the Mormon community, as well as the LGBTQ community. But um, according to that recent study she had quoted um, at the University of Georgia, more than 70% of the LGBT Mormons surveyed met criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the sermons and teachings they heard at church. So those triggers are real and, and powerful as we discussed. And, and, it really, it really, it can't be understated. I don't think as to um, the complexity and the severity of what people feel when they go into a Mormon church. In fact, there was a gentleman who <clears throat> was in my group in my ward who came to hear me speak at state conference, and I looked at him uh, while I gave my talk, and I, uh, my heart went out to him because I could see the emotion, just absolutely terrified just as I was. And, you know, I, I, I have so much respect for him because I don't know if I could have done the same thing for him. Uh, these people take risks just by showing up. Um, the pain is, is real. And, and so we really just need to honor that, um, like you say, and, and to not minimize it. And to understand it so that we can help them heal um, as, as myself. I did find the title of this LDS listening article that just came out today. Do we dismiss, do we dismiss what causes others pain? So well said, Scott. Thank you. So I, I found support for searching for my friends to replace my religion. And I found sporting groups like uh, this incredibly supportive uh, swim team. It's called the Long Beach Grunions. It's a gay swim team, but we have gay and, and straight members on it. And they, 
they help me support a positive body image and inner strength. I have a running group that sometimes I feel saved me um, so many times because uh, I remember I was teaching a speed training class and and right before a marathon, we went around in a circle and I asked everyone to say one thing that would, you know, that they felt like was helpful from our speed training classes. And this one lady said, and, and or, or, uh, what running did for them, I wanted to hear what running does for them. And this one lady said, uh, it makes me feel human again. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> wish I could do this without so many tears, but I, I felt, I felt so strongly about what she just said there, because there was something about me being able to run and have that strength and to prove to myself that there was something I had control over that made me feel human again. And I, I would just hope that anyone who is suffering from depression or from lack of worth, self-worth, no matter what your issues are, no matter what, that they can find something in their life that makes them feel human again, that makes them feel in control, that makes them feel powerful. Um, because it's so important in the healing process. It's so important for you to be able to say, I I can do this part. I'm okay when I'm doing this. There's so such great comfort in that. And um and that's what I found from these sports sporting groups. So um it was important me for me to have that because I literally felt like I had cut off my arms to leave that church. I did not want to go. I didn't want to leave the music. I didn't want to leave some of the people that I felt were strongly against us leaving, but yet, you know, weren't part of the majority. Uh, I just didn't want to leave. I, I felt like I was leaving my heritage. I felt like I was leaving my grandparents who sacrificed so much to leave Denmark. Um, to be closer to the church, I felt like I was disappointing my own family but it was something I had to do to save myself. I didn't really understand it all the way when I did it, but I knew it had to happen. And um, eventually through these other groups, I found a way to give me, make my arms grow back. And they didn't grow back in the same way. They, grow back, they grew back in different ways, but they were stronger. And, and I knew that I would be able to rely on these new arms for the rest of my life if I needed to. And that was a great feeling for me to feel. Um, I just love that visual um, of you having to cut off your arms to free yourself from the snare. I'm thinking, uh, I think his name's Adam Ralston or Aaron Ralston who cut off his arm when that boulder trapped yeah. him to live. And I'm thinking the phys we understand what he had to do and the courage that that took to hack off. I read that book and heard him break his bones to, you know, f it was just very graphic and very courageous and it allowed him to live. Yeah. And I think of the boulder and the boulder to me is, it, you know, Adam didn't do anything wrong. That boulder just came down and, and you didn't do anything wrong here. You just had this incredible boulder trap both of your arms in this snare and 
I recognize I kind of frame that boulder up as just the limitations of our institutional church and the pain it created to you and our inability to meet your spiritual needs. And I think that's just, we need to learn to be able to just say that and identify that and not feel like, doesn't make me an activist saying I'm against the church or we need, this is the way we solve it going forward. It just acknowledges the pain and the boulder that's that's slammed on your arms and you've done everything you can to avoid the boulder. Um, It's not a boulder you manufactured. (laughs) Um, You didn't, you didn't even go climbing like Adam did and put yourself in risk um, in that slot Canyon that he was trapped in. You were doing everything you can to be safe. And so there's some differences in that, in that analogy, but I love the way your arms grew back differently. It's a really powerful analogy, Scott. Thank you. Um, it's, and it's it a, felt it's, literal at the time. And it's not a sign of weakness. Uh-huh. I don't think you stepped away because you were weak. I think you stepped away because you were strong and you just knew that this, that you couldn't find your spiritual needs, needs met here and it would often add to your trauma. It's just the reality of the situation. I see that when you say that now. At the time, I felt incredibly weak and I wished I could have seen it. I, I wished I could have known you and heard that perspective of it because I really did feel weak. And I, I did feel like um, their other part of it was that Howard Anderson was very strong in telling us every week or every month that we met, um, please keep going to church. They can't ignore you if you aren't going, if, if you're there, they can't ignore you. And, and he was right. They can't, but it's hard to do when you're struggling with your own well-being right. just to prove that you're not going away. And, and I, someone else has told me about Howard Anderson in a lunch. It wasn't a podcast, but somebody else told me how much they love the stick president and what he did. He was part of that group, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. He, he just was really, truly amazing. And uh, the only two things, that rules that we had in those meetings was no gay bashing and no church bashing. And that's all we really needed. And it it enforced respect on both sides. It was really important. Um, it was it was really groundbreaking for me. And I I guess yeah I I guess fast forwarding to the um, current year then um, where I. Um, I as I continued on my journey, I, I felt like I had uh, found, if, if anything spoke to me spiritually as true, I adopted it and I kind of took that in. And it did give me a little bit of freedom to say, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to investigate Buddhism. I'm going to investigate some other maybe things that kind of ring true to me and, and meditation really rang true to me. And uh, there were things that really soothed me, and uh, and I'm grateful actually that that happened. I I I would have never believed that uh, leaving it, but I I was actually very grateful for what I was able to learn along the way in those twenty years as to um, how strong I was actually in myself and how much credit I could give myself. But um, but there was still kind of these these open wounds for me and these question marks that I had. And I 
I knew that I couldn't stay active in the Mormon church, but I knew that I could leave my records in the Mormon church. And that was my way of being able to honor Howard Anderson and say, you're not getting rid of me that easy. I'm going to be on those rolls and you're going to see my name every time. And you're going to have to be reminded why I don't go. And it wasn't in a vindictive way. It was just in a way to be able to say, remember me, remember my experience. Because someday it may be really helpful. I don't know, but I hope it is. And when missionaries would come to visit me every once in a while, I'd have them for dinner. I'd tell them my story. I'd tell them why I didn't go. And I'd tell them they were welcome any time they wanted. But it was a way for me to be able to share my story and to teach. Uh, just like I, when I was a missionary, it's just a different it's just a, a different lesson that I was teaching. And I tried to teach it with the Spirit. Um, so in January of this year, uh, President Emerson Fierce, the stake president, and my, uh, my prior bishop, um, who was still bishop when I was attending. Uh, What's his name? His name is... Uh, uh, <laughs> now I've stumped you. Yeah. Oh. It'll come to you. So yeah. President Fersh and your and... prior bishop knock on your door. <laughs> Yeah. They, so they do they call in advance? Does do they text you saying they're coming, or do they just Bishop Perry? Sorry, I knew um, it come to you. Yeah. Um. They they had uh, knocked on my door out of the blue at ten thirty a.m. on a Sunday morning. Wow. Bishops and, and stake presidents are supposed to be at church on. They and, sure are. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. That it was a Sunday morning. Yeah, I thought it's maybe... not seven thirty when the this is right during the meeting block. It it could only mean one thing for me, that the church has done something again, <laughs> because I had read the the twenty fifteen um, uh, policy change that they had made on gays, and I thought, oh, they're here to excommunicate me. It it must be. I agree, and that would be a very logical conclusion. So they wanted to speak to me and they were very persistent. And I kept saying, no, I think I need to, you know, I'm in, in a hurry. I need to go. And, and, uh, and I, I was actually uh, trying to get to a swim. And, but yeah, they convinced me to, to let them in, into my building. And so. So um, this was just like over the speaker. They weren't even, I'm visualizing a face-to-face -face conversation, a doorstep. This is over a speaker. Yeah. So you can't even see these guys and they no. want to come talk to you in your place. Yeah. I had, you know, no idea who President Fersh was. I've never met him. Um, and he has a very interesting background in and of his own. He was not a member of the church up until about 15 years ago. Um, he's very open about his story of being an alcoholic and finding uh, God and converting to Mormonism, and and now he's a stake president. He has a a very unique perspective based on his history, and um and he shared with me that morning some of his history. And so he 
he spoke to me and said that they just wanted to invite me to a state conference. They didn't know where I was uh, as far as the Mormon church goes, but they were uh, where I was in my in my current standing, but that they wanted to invite me to the state conference. It was a special state conference. Um, they're reaching out to LGBTQ people. Uh, they're having a gay person who's going to be speaking about his um, his experiences being being a gay man in the Mormon Church, um, and he wanted me to know that they were they were trying to reach out to others within our stake, and he looked at me straight in the eye, and he said he loved me. And he said, he's sorry. And he said some other things that I don't want to share because they're very personal. But they were things I really needed to hear. Because I've been waiting my, most of my life to hear them. And so... I had no idea the depth of these wounds that I still had. But the fact that this man decided to come and visit me personally and tell me these things, and he was highly emotional when he did it. You cannot not listen to that. You can't, you can't refuse that feeling. And he is very non-traditional. I think most people would say, let's hold another meeting. How are we going to do this? 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday. At best. But to actually go? and be part of that person's life in that person's space and to get in there and say, no, we're going to get in there and we're going to talk to him. We're going to tell him we love him. We're going to tell him that he matters and that we're sorry. I can't explain to you what that does to me, what that did to me. Now, not, maybe not everybody would take it that same way, but I did. He took a chance. And so I just want to say that, and, and not only that, he followed up. I, I wasn't able to attend the state conference. I had a prior engagement. But I told him I wanted to talk to him and speak with him again. He wanted me to come to his office and told me he would set up an appointment. Eventually we did. We had a three-hour meeting where I spoke about my truth, my experiences, my past. He listened, actively listened to all of it, invited this other gentleman, Mike uh, Seacrest, who spoke in the state conference and came out uh, as well. And it was, it was a chance for me to really explain um, what I had been through and to help have him have a basis for everything he said. 
And now after listening to me and ranting on about my past and everything that I have been through, which I did very respectfully, but after having him do that, there is nothing this man can't tell me or say to me that I will not respect. Nothing. And I just can't explain enough how important it is, active listening, active listening, active listening. It's an absolute must for anyone to understand anyone's pain. And it's a lesson for me as well to help anyone else with pain, regardless of where it comes from. I think it's a must. And the more we actively listen, the better chance we have of actually helping those people through their pain doesn't take it away, but it helps them through it. It helps them understand and feel loved. It's really important. I think it's part of our commitment as followers of Christ that we take that commitment seriously, that we really use that commitment to, to make sure that we help people along the way. And I hope I never neglect that when I am offered that kind of an opportunity because I feel so lucky to have had those two men come to me uh, and take time out of their schedule for me. I, I didn't feel like I was worthy of that kind of time. I didn't feel like I was even worthy of that kind of apology, but it was really amazing. It was a life changer for me. It forever will be. I'm just so touched. I think a lot of our listeners have tears in their eyes. And what President First did, in some ways, isn't very complicated. No. In some ways, I love this story because we could all do what Bishop Perry and President First did. And I love the symbolic. It was on a Sunday morning when they should be in meetings and were really good at meetings in church and talking about sort of how to minister people. But he just said, we're out of here we're going to do this. We're leaving the building. We're going to go find Scott. And then what he did in that visit with you and your love for him. Um, it's just a, I had a chance to go to that state conference um, and hear Michael Seacrest speak in that Saturday night session as he gave a great talk coming out to his congregation. And the line of people wanting to meet him after it just went on and on and on. And I could just tell, and I, I realized that you know, I can talk to President Frisch. If I'm a member of his stake, no matter what's going on in my life, yeah, if I'm LGBTQ, I can talk to him. But if I have anything going on in my life, and I think the same with his bishops, they are safe. I can, I know because he's extending love to LGBTQ, the message that sends to everybody about, and his mantra is creating Zion. Um, he asked me to speak in the Sunday session of state conference. and I'm so sorry I missed that. Well... He, and I sent him a talk. I wanted to make sure that I was aligning with him. And he said, it's not bold enough. <laughs> and I think what he was wanting to do is to teach that we grow through being uncomfortable at times. And certainly listening to the gay men in my YSA ward made me uncomfortable because I recognized their journey and I recognized limitations in my thinking and the institutional church to meet their needs. So he wanted me to be bolder, not to be it's not being critical of the church. It's not saying this is how we do it better, but I think we grow through 
we grow through being uncomfortable. And this, some of this podcast may some, make some of our listeners uncomfortable. And I think that's okay because I think we do grow through being uncomfortable and it helps us know how to do better. So this is a, an incredible experience you're having with President Fersh and, and what he's doing. So just keep, yeah, go back and keep telling your story. Well, I, I think what's remarkable as well is that since President Fersh wasn't even around when any of this was going on, yet he still felt the responsibility to apologize. Um, I, I think that's remarkable. It's interesting. It's very and perceptive. I think that being able to, you know, hear those words um, was based on his position was, was just really important for me to just hear that, you know, and I, I, so I, I think that sometimes we don't even have to be directly responsible for things that go wrong. We can say that we're sorry for the things that have happened to anybody, um, in the past, just by saying, not only am I sorry, I'm going to commit to doing something to change it. I'm going to commit to doing something that makes it better. And that's exactly what he did. So after we spoke for a while and I talked to him about why it wasn't possible for me really to even allow myself to attend church anymore after the 2015 policy change, because I felt like I couldn't be in church without hearing something mentioned about that policy. And I, I would have to somehow vocalize that that was not appropriate. I felt like it went against the second article of faith where we don't baptize children of gay people, but yet we don't have similar policies for those of murderers and rapists and even child molesters. Um, that we were singling out this group and that it was a very, very biased policy and that I, I couldn't agree to it because I felt the, the need to be able to speak about it. And I did tell that to um, President Emerson at the time that that policy had not yet been reversed at that point. And, um, and also the missionaries who, you know, would visit me as well. I, when they would invite me to church, I'd say, yes, well, I don't think you're ready for me. Um, if that were to happen, I would have to vocalize some kind of a dissent. Um, there was just something in me that it just, it wasn't true. And I couldn't, I couldn't just sit there and hear it. And so I didn't want to be disrespectful and I didn't want to, to put myself or anyone else in a disrespectful kind of position. I just felt like I would have to somehow answer to that. So I, I, he, he did listen to everything I had to say. And, and I told him that my main, my biggest concern, it remains my biggest concern to this day is the youth suicide rates that increase and not just within the Mormon church, but overall. And I, um, I don't want to hold any one church or one group responsible for these youth suicide rates, but I do want us to recognize that this is a real problem and that we, we have the power to maybe make some changes for these people so that they stop. Um, and, uh, I, I told him that I would be happy to be part of any outreach programs 
that maybe we could do. And I mentioned Howard Anderson's program. Um, and, and he was on board with something similar. We, um, and so now every second Sunday of the month in the Long Beach Stake, East Long Beach Stake, East Long Beach Stake, we have a outreach group to LGBTQ Mormons who meet at a member's home. And we have a family home meeting the third Sunday of every month for allies of LGBTQ people. Um, we had to start splitting it up because we've got so many people attending, which is a great thing. Um, and, you know, again, the, the rules there are just, you know, we need to be respectful. And, and, and President Fersh has given uh, both Mike and I quite a bit of latitude in how we uh, discuss the issues at hand and, and being able to listen to people who attend and understand their issues. It's, it's critical. It's absolute critical that, absolutely critical that we provide that safe space for these people to be able to communicate their own, their own, their own background and their own issues. Do you worry these are going to get shut down? Like, um, I forgot his name, Howard Anderson, I think. I do. Um, I, so initially, especially I did, and I, I vocalized my concerns with President Fersh because my, my concern wasn't even so much that we're starting these, but what happens when they get closed down? Because in my mind, they would get closed down. They will get closed down. It's a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. And, and can we gain the traction we need before they get closed down to do any good? And President Fersh said, I, you know, he said, well, you know, if we don't hold them on church property, then, you know, and, and we do these at members' homes, then, you know, th there's less of a, a chance of that happening. We talked about ways of being able to kind of mitigate that. I think he was more concerned about me and how I felt about it than actually having them closed down. I think he was trying to get me to understand that some things have changed. Um, and I didn't see that at the time. And he's been working on this for a very long time. He's been preparing this stake, the leaders in the stake and the membership in the stake. He's been preparing them for a lot of things. Um, he's had outreach programs to the black communities and the black churches and for, for joint uh, congregations. Uh, he's, uh, so he's created these incredible outreach programs for people on Skid Row where they're giving away hundreds and hundreds of backpacks full of food and things that they need. He is not a one-issue kind of guy. And he, his response to everything I ever said and any concern I ever said was, as far as are you worried about what they might do to your membership or what they would say or how you would, you know, how they would respond either from church offices or wherever, he would say, you know what, I am going to do what I believe is uh, Christ wants me to do. I'm going to follow Christ and, and that's important to me. I'm going to focus on that. So I feel like that I don't feel like he was ever out of turn in how he represented the Mormon church or how he represented his stake or, or his calling. I feel like 
he was helping me to understand that, don't worry, Scott, don't worry, we'll, we'll do this. We'll get, we'll get there and we'll make this happen somehow. And, um, and if it all, you know, comes crashing down, we just, we'll find another way. So to help them, you know, in, in some other way, but his main concern was just making sure that, you know, these people were cared for. So yes, I did have a large, a very large amount of concern with those being closed down because I saw the damage that was caused from the last one. In my conversations with President Fersh, I, I think he's received some cover, and I'll let him speak about that. You know, he can answer that question. That I think he feels like from his um, running this up the flagpole and helping to name it the way it was named, that he did get some. He feels pretty confident, and I know other stakes now that are consulting and looking at what the Long Beach East Stake is doing and saying, well, we, we can do that. And and so one of the my hopes is what you're doing is scalable. And um, Me too. And the church is at a, a point where we're recognizing, you know, for me, it all shifted when I start quit thinking of LGBTQ people as an outside threat to our faith or or me and looked at them as our own people. You're our own people, Scott. <laughs> So we have a responsibility to you. You're not an other group. You're our family. And so the, if you go down that road, then you say, what are my baptism responsibility? Or my, if I'm a leader, what are my stewardship responsibilities? So to me, this what is going on there is consistent with our doctrine. And I think we're mature enough to not to be able to do this. And I hope it's the beginning of just this being more of this happening. I so, hope so too. I but, really hope so. But too. rightly so. I like the way he is thinking about you, recognizing your hopes have been crushed and you've walked in this space and you know, you've seen this pattern over and over again. So rightly so, you would be guarded just to protect yourself emotionally. Yeah. As as we're talking about your PTSD throughout kind of this podcast. So yeah, keep sharing more of your story. Um, so yeah, I I think that um what was really positive, like you say, the area president was also on board. He he's done nothing in the closet. He has always been True. very open about what he's doing as far as these outreach programs go, and they have all been authorized by people over him in area presidencies, as well as the um, elder Weatherford Clayton, who was a, in attendance, um, uh, general authority in attendance of the uh, the state conference that I spoke at. Um, was also very much aware of this. So, so let we just ought to stop there. I hope what our listeners heard is the January state conference he invited you to, you weren't able to attend, but the very next state conference in the stake, which I think was in June, was in June with the visiting general authority or area authority 70, he asked you to speak at state conference, the Sunday session or Saturday night session? The Saturday night session. Saturday night session with Elder Weatherford Clayton. Yeah. So that's... I don't know if that's later in your story, if you want to talk about that now. Um, well, I, I think that um, it was terrifying. <laughs> How long in advance did he ask you to speak in state conference, like a month, a week? Um, so I knew about it a couple of months in advance. Um, he had, he, uh, President Fersh had mentioned that he would like to have me speak, and he had to get it cleared through uh, Elder uh, Weatherford Clayton. Um, once it was cleared, then you know I 
yeah, I was terrified. And I, um, I was lucky enough to um, let President Frisch read kind of one of my drafts to help me identify where I really needed to focus um, because 10 minutes is not long um, and getting a focal point is important. Um, he knew his congregation. He knew how much they had been given up until that point, and he knew how much he wanted to make them feel uncomfortable. He's very much in tune with these congregants, and he knows them, and he supports them, and he wants them to do better, and he wants to be part of that change. And I just really respect that. I really, truly respect that. There were some things he would say, you know, maybe back off on that a bit. Let's leave that for a leadership conference, which I did actually uh, be part of. I taught at a, a stake leadership conference later. Um, and I, I think that he was just so helpful in helping me identify what needed to be done without compromising my own truth and without compromising myself. And it was, it was so much appreciated. And I, I think that that, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's leaders like that where I just know, um, and people like that in the church where I know they're, they're guided by the spirit. I know it. I feel it. I, you, you can't, you can't question it. Uh, when I hear your own broadcasts, I know you're working with the spirit. There, there is something that, that talks to you, uh, that, that tells me that this is, you know, this is really sincere and it's, and it's very much, uh, confirmed by the spirit and my own, in my own, uh, body. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, he was really, Weatherford Clayton, Elder Clayton was very supportive after my talk and very warm. And, uh, you know, I, I had some things to say and uh, that, that were not necessarily, um, not necessarily in line with what the church normally teaches in a way, um, I, I won't say that I, I said anything that was uh, directly contrary, but that my personal revelation was important. And he did nothing to, um, to mitigate that or change that, which I really appreciated. In fact, his comment, his ending comment to his home talk was... This is Elder Clayton's talk. Elder Clayton um, that evening was that uh, he hoped that we all could live our um, authentic lives as as followers of Christ. It's a great comment. It's a great comment. It was a wonderful comment, and I felt like I was heard. Um, boy, I felt like I was heard. Something that's I think helpful. I'm asked to speak at times about this topic, um, which is fine, <laughs> but it's better if LDS LGBTQ people speak. And that's something sometimes I'm criticized, rightly so, when I'm invited to speak and LGBTQ would say, well, they need to hear our stories. And I absolutely agree. And my heart changed mostly not by listening to straight people tell me about LGBTQ people. It was listening to the gay men in my ward. That's where it all started. So when I heard Mike Seacrest talk on in your state conference, then if I'd been there for years, that's how hearts change. That's why I'm honored to do this podcast to bring your story to life because yeah. that's how hearts change is listening to you 
in listening to the Spirit as you talk and share your journey. And and so I'm so glad that, that President Fersh is doing that. And maybe other local leaders, you have to start with an ally in a pragmatic way just to start the discussion going. And an ally maybe feels really safe. Um, hopefully we can just kind of get right to having LGBTQ people tell their stories and what's happening in your stake as stake members being able to tell your journey. And and as a side note, Elder Weatherford Clayton delivered our first daughter when we lived in California at oh, Hope wow. Hospital way oh. back 27 <laughs> years ago. So he was a really good OB and we were really slow that night <laughs> and he was up all night with us. And wow. so I hope he, I don't know if he's ever caught, caught up on his sleep from his practice, but it's wonderful what he's doing now. So keep sharing your story, Scott. Um so yeah, after I delivered my baby, um, <laughs> yeah, um, he was he was very gracious, and I um, I think that um, to your point, uh, I would also say that um, other leaders who are listening to this don't worry about what you know and what you don't know. If you take on an ally who is LGBTQ, I can almost guarantee they'll know so much more than you. Listen to what they have to say. Follow it up with what the church's policies currently are. And, and I'm sure you'll find that there's a lot of consistency there. So uh, use them as your own resource to, to better identify how you can minister to the LGBTQ community in your congregations. But um, I, I want to talk just a little bit, if I may. Um, there's, there's this... Um, there's this time where I went to um, a group called Affirmation, and it was originally created in Los Angeles. Um, now it's worldwide, but it was um, very um, it was it was created independently by uh, gay, lesbian, Mormons who um, were uh, feeling like they needed some kind of support. And so it was all done before the age of internet and everything. And, uh, and it wasn't in any way, shape or form, um, being supported by, uh, the Mormon church, but they had formed this group and, um, we were meeting monthly and we had some really dear, um, people who were attending it, who had lost a son to AIDS and they, um, were Joan and Bill Atkinson. And I went to one of these meetings uh, back when I was trying to identify whether or not I could stay active. And I had mentioned uh, this incident where I was in the the um, the foyer and I heard these two kids uh, yelling at each other. One of them just yelled out the word fag. And nobody reacted within the foyer. And I was just, my my heart kind of sank. And I thought, wow you know, not a single person here reacted to that. And so I went to the affirmation meeting that night and I just said, well, I don't know if I can keep going. I'm, I just don't know if I can do this. And Sister Atkinson, uh, she had this really amazing energy and she said, oh, you know what? That's just, that's just 
a teachable moment. That's when I just go up to them and I can say, you know, you know, we don't use that word. And that word is a really bad word. We never use that word because it means something really bad about people who are so good. And so, and she just went on and about how this was such a teachable moment. And I looked at her and awe, and I just thought, wow, I just wish I could be more like Sister Atkinson. I wish I could be more like Joan because I really wanted to be able to take all of this negative energy coming at me at the time with Prop 22 and to be able to say, no, these are teaching moments every single time. And I, I didn't feel strong enough to be able to do that at the time. But I recognize her voice in my head now, and she has, you know, uh, passed uh, last year, but I, I hear her voice in my head still. And I think it's important for us as members within the church to recognize that there are uh, very, no matter what the issue is, there is very rarely a time where we see on, if we were to, you know, draw out a Gantt chart, that that is a continuous upward rise without little defaults and little slips along the way. That there are going to be crevices, there are going to be dips in how we progress. And I think that in order for us to really see the big picture and how we move forward as a church and as, as individuals of, of followers of Christ, that we recognize that both within ourselves and within other people, there will be dips. And we, we empower ourselves so much more if we look at those dips as teaching moments as a way to be able to say, oh, you know what? I don't believe that. I don't, I don't agree with that because these people, you know, aren't that way. These people don't do what you just said. They're not a general category. They're individuals. And we don't look at them, you know, as a general category any more than we would say straight people. And I think that it's it's just a very powerful way for, for me to be able to take that kind of control and say, no, I'm, I'm going to make this my teaching moment. I'm going to help people understand. Um, so I, uh, um, yeah, I guess just to kind of follow that up, um, there's a few points that I just wanted to make, um, with my, with what I've seen in the past and my experience that I feel like can be maybe these teachable moments for other people. Good. Um, and one of them is um, an occasion where I was at the Salt Lake Airport and I was trying to get back to L.A. And uh, the next thing I know, these uh, flight attendants come up to me. I was on standby for first class. Um, and these flight attendants come up to me and they say, oh, we put you together. And I said, oh, together. And they said, with Donnie. And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, I'll take a first class upgrade no matter what, no matter how it comes. So they apparently thought I was traveling with Donnie Osmond. And I found myself in the seat next to him. And while we've never had, you know, we've uh, had these, these family occasions, I've never had a personal one-on-one -on -one with him. And here we had this long, nice long flight. And I... Uh, I, I first of all want to say how much I respect the Osmond family. Um, they have given me, and I did tell them this, I, they've given me no reason to be embarrassed by them. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. They have 
really, um, they have done amazing things for the Mormon church and, and getting people converted. I, I saw so many people that heard about Mormonism just because of them in Europe and uh, in, in general. But I, but I, I was sitting here speaking with Donnie Osmond and I said, well, you know, um, how do I even start this conversation? You know, I didn't want to start out with, I'm a little bit country. I'm a little bit homosexual, you know, <laughs> I, what year is I, this roughly? Um, this so, slide? uh, this was in, um, it, it was in 2003. So this yeah. is close. Okay. 2003. Okay. Yeah. Um, I believe it was 2003. Um, he was he was doing the million dollar pyramid, and he was flying back and forth, and uh, as a host. And I, I said, well, uh, I I really want to just thank you uh, for you know, but I and but he admitted right off the bat that he said, oh, you must have been horribly teased. And I just thought, yeah, he he recognized that that was quite a burden so to you, go up with. So this is after you told him you were gay. So you no, this is after I told him I I I said, well, I don't know if you recognize me or anything, but I'm I'm Scott Osmond and I'm a cousin of yours, and and so you know I and he he said, oh yeah, well you you must have been really you know that must have been hard for you growing up, and this was before I told him I was gay. Um. I, I think that was, you know, very kind of him to recognize yeah. that. And uh, because, yeah, I was very commonly teased for that. And uh, and so I uh, spoke to him a little bit about how I was also, you know, teased for also being gay and that, you know, that was something that I was was dealing with. And he, in a kind of a roundabout way, we we start. He started talking about how you know being around gay people was very common for him uh, in his industry, and that you know Paul Lynn, hello, they were he was on his show, and I, I that that was no secret <laughs> to anybody watching. But I I think that he you know mentioned that you know that was not an issue for him. But he continued to go on and and speak about hypothesizing about the, the theology that uh, what what it meant to be gay within the Mormon uh, theology, and he said that you know maybe in his opinion that it could be that we were you know administering angels, um, and I I recognized that he was trying to find a place for me which, you know, in a way was very kind and that he didn't mean it in a way, mean way. Um, but at the same time, it made me feel less than. Right. Um, that I am, I guess, you know, because I'm gay, I'm going to be uh, serving other people for the rest of my life or cutting their hair or whatever. And I, I just felt like, you know, that was something that, I didn't probably need to hear. Um, and I don't want it to be a criticism of him personally. I just want to use this as a teaching Good. experience because I want to say anyone who wants to hypothesize about our place in the afterlife and where we fit in is just an absolute guess. We don't know. 
And so let's leave it at that. And let's not make anyone feel less than. Let's not try and fit them into a space they don't belong. God will work this out. It, he will work this out. And I know I have a place. And I know I'll be happy. If I, if I do what I need to do, I know he will reward me with my own place. And I don't need anybody to tell me that that will be anything less than what they get. So I like that. I did a podcast with a BYU professor and this came up and he's, I said, what advice? And he says, I have no advice. It's a good answer. And he said, I have no idea, you know, how LGBTQ people, he was so, he was so humble and he was so bright and he's used to having an answer because he's a great, you know, religious professor, but I just thought that was such a thoughtful answer to say, I don't know. And so I think we're going to be pretty certain sometimes, but I think that can add to people's burdens. So that's great advice, Scott. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that in a world of um, the LGBTQ community where you're constantly trying to prove your worth and you're, you're filled with overachievers because they are constantly trying to say, I'm worthy of this. I'm worthy of, of recognition. I'm worthy of all these other things. Just because I don't have a family, I'm still worthy of going home at the same time as all these other employees who go home at the same time to their families. I'm, I am worth the same thing. We are constantly trying to, in, in small ways, in large ways, in very substantial ways, prove that we have worth that is similar to anyone who is not in the same situation. So I just would would humbly ask that people consider that when you're trying to think about those kinds of hypotheses. And I, I think that um, uh, places like uh, affirmation can be a great place for um, people to go to get more information and be around other people who are LGBTQ as well. Um, just recognize that there is a history there where uh, there was um, a large number of people who felt excluded once um, there were, became more church affiliation within affirmation. And there is a distrust there. And so these are still people who are very hurt and, uh, and, and don't feel like uh, the church has taken steps that they need to um, to make them feel welcome into groups like Affirmation anymore. And uh, even blogs that were written about Howard Anderson's group were removed when that happened. Uh, so there's, there is a distrust, but I want everyone to recognize that we all have some learning to do. We all have some healing to do on both sides. And we all need to trust each other a little bit that, you know, if we're going to move forward as, as a community and at large, we, we do have to show a little bit of trust. And if it's your choice not to do that, I respect that. I completely 100% respect that. I respect your experiences and I respect your, I respect your pain. But I, I would suggest that that's something that you consider uh, going forward. Um, and I would also suggest that when we talk about things like the gay lifestyle um, and that it perpetuates poor and risky behavior with uh, um, 
homosexuality and that we're using these blanket terms, um, there is no gay lifestyle. I can promise you that. Um, my, uh, we are all different. We are all different. We're snowflakes. Every one of us is different. I do not do hair. I cannot, you know, do interior design to save my life, but I have my strengths and weaknesses in different places and there, we all do. Um, I, I just, I think that, um, I think that's important for people to recognize. Um, and we also recognize that um, because in the past, just in a general way, society has viewed homosexuality um, as a sexual deviancy. And there has been a strong lack of familial support and lack of spiritual and religious support and lack of social support and civic and legal support. Um, how would you, if you were in this situation, react to the pressure this lack would cause? Where would you go for support? And if you were labeled as opposite sex attracted, what would you do to be around others who are also opposite sex attracted as a minority? Would you move to these bigger cities? Would you look for people around you who are in the same situation? Would you self-medicate? Would you, would you uh, subscribe to controversial treatments to maybe uh, mitigate the emotional pain and damage? Would you um, maybe even engage in risky behaviors um, just to make the pain go away for a little while. I, I think that it's important for us to recognize that this isn't self-inflicted. This isn't because we're gay or LGBTQ. This is because there has been a strong lack of support. And, and when there is that much support withdrawn from people, then people tend to act out in different ways. And so... I hope that um, nobody ever looks at this community as just a simple group of sexual deviants because we are so much more than that. And as we see the social support enlarging, we see those fam familial bonds increasing. We see that people are thriving in their lives and becoming productive and, and helpful citizens uh, all around the world. So we see, we see what support can do and we see what lack of support can do. Um, and I, I also want to say that um, there is probably no end to what you would go to if you were told that you would not get the same, you would not get the full blessings um, in this life or the next life if you did not marry someone of your same sex, if that was the case, that they, you had to marry your same sex. And when you put yourself in that situation, you start to understand what it feels like for a gay um, person within the Mormon church, what they're being asked to do or what they have been asked to do. Um, and, and currently, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you start to understand why it's it's so difficult for for everyone to to do that. Um, th there have been some real watershed moments in my life where the passage of gay marriage in Utah 
happened on December 20th, 2013. I flew in that same day for Christmas and my sister and I went down to the city county building. Um, we wanted to, I wanted to see what, what was going on. They were having a rally and I was first of all, so surprised to see that there were no protesters, not one that I could physically see. And I think whether that's because everyone was still baking cookies, I don't know, but, and running around for Christmas, but I was grateful for that. It, it, it made me, it, it was a time in my life I never would have imagined. I didn't see that ever happening in my lifetime. And I'm so grateful for it. And we were interviewed on the news, on Channel 2 News, and it was just this amazing, um, this amazing moment in my life. And I can't, say what that what what kind of doors those open for me emotionally to say that it's okay um it's okay for me to be who i am so this is another change where i am okay to be who i am um i i'm really lucky to live in this time and space and um i also want to address one other thing with regard to mixed orientation marriages i want to make sure everyone understands that i am am uh, such a, I am, even though the church doesn't currently subscribe to um, a gay person marrying a straight person um, uh, currently, um, I support those marriages that have been entered into and may be entered into in the future. Um, there's been a lot of times where I've seen those fail, um, but the ones that I've seen succeed, where both partners know what's going on, they're fully aware, they're communicative, they have families that they love, they wouldn't change it for any way, shape, or form. It is critical and crucial that we as a gay community, LGBTQ community, accept those people as much as anyone else. That is their truth. They have an absolute right to their truth, and we have no business telling them that they are not being authentic or their truth selves. They are being their truth self. I can guarantee that. I have been very much a part of their lives, and I am very happy for them, and we owe them that kind of support. So I, I agree with that. And I didn't know that till I talked to people in mixed orientation marriages and they've, as you may know, we've done a couple podcasts and they're, they're beautiful love stories. They are. And I love the way you frame that out. And I love your maturity in the LGBTQ space where you can honor other LGBTQ people as they choose their own path. And that's not activating to you. It may have been at one time. Um, but I think that's a great sign of your maturity in the space you're walking to honor everybody's stories within that space. And that's, that's great, Scott. So that's, that's very well said. Thank you so much. So I just want to leave you with some ways that you can help, um, that I believe members can help today. Um, and going forward, I, I want to leave everyone on this positive note, as you mentioned at the beginning, with some action items that if they want change to happen, this is how I envision it happening for, uh, that they can, they can make a real difference. Um, first of all, I want, to, I want them to be able to find a way to acquaint themselves with the church's current position on sexual identity and orientation. It's critical. If you don't know what LGBTQ means, find out. 
It's lesbian, gay, transgender, uh, uh, bisexual, transgender, uh, Q for questioning or queer. Um, and then there's also two more letters, intersex and asexual. Please familiarize yourselves with those terms because they're not going away. They are part of this community's identity and it's how they identify themselves. And if you don't know what to call somebody, um, ask, ask them what they want to be called. And I promise they won't be offended. So, um, you, um, it's, it's also critical that we all come to the understanding that sexual identity is not chosen full stop. It is assigned at, and there may be questions and, and people may question their sexual identity as they go along in life. And they may question what they do with that sexuality and how they, 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 um, they live their lives with it, but it is not a chosen item. And, and that is the current church's stance. And I hope that all members will closely associate themselves with that policy change. Um, and, and pray and get personal confirmation if you need it, because this is an absolute truth. I, 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 tr I, I truly believe it. The more I listen to everybody's story, um, from when I first started coming out to now and, and through your podcast as well, it's, it's enforced over and over and over again. This is not a choice. It's not a choice. It's not a choice. What you do with it is a choice. Your orientation is not. Um, and so, um, also I can't, I, I will say one more time, active listening, absolutely essential. You must be willing to offer, to listen to the story of these, these groups of people. And you, you can make a change in someone's life today by finding someone who is either a member of your congregation or outside of your congregation and asking them if you could listen to their story and listen to them. Um, or you can listen to some more of the podcasts from Richard Osler and Live, Learn, Love. And there's so many good ones here, so many good ones. So uh, you can be proactive with that. I would also say that you can talk to your bishop and stake leaders, as we've talked about before, to outreach, uh, to form outreach groups for LGBTQ members and their allies. Um, and so you can offer your home as a place for these meetings and you can feel free to contact me or I'm, I hope Richard uh, as well, if you would like more information as to how we've set those up in our own stake so that you can come to your own leaders and ask them for permission to do something similar. I will tell you, these are very spiritual meetings. They are very enlightening and, um, and they will probably, I hope, change your life. They definitely have changed mine. Um, I would also say don't push someone to come out of the closet who you think may be LGBTQ. This is a personal decision they need to make, and you have no business in it without uh, them opening up to you first. And if they open up to you, is a huge amount of trust that goes into that. Keep their confidence at all costs. Do not go talking to anybody else about 
these things that they've entrusted you with in their care. That is absolute critical. Um, and, and make them feel safe and make them feel like they're understood. So I like that. I think sometimes when we are trusted with information, we, we use that to elevate ourselves that we are kind of in the know of a situation or have a key piece of information as a way to elevate ourselves. And maybe it's our pride sinking in. So I think that's another way to make sure we don't do what you're asking us not to do is we can't share that information. No, no, not unless you're specifically told to. And I think we know that when someone opens up us with confidential information, they're not supposed to share. What kind of message does that send to me about that person? I'm not going to open up to that person. Yeah. If they're just sharing with me stuff that is confidential and was asked not to be shared. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, I think that when we consider um, the position that the LGBTQ members are in, where we're we're just we're really not given a clear eternal plan, um, which makes us question where we're at within the plan to begin with. Um, that we um, we are you know sometimes hypothesized about that, and and then uh, sometimes we also are. Um, we are at the mercy of people's own uh, opinions and biases um, that sometimes that can be a very lonely existence. Um, we're being asked currently essentially to exclude us from meaningful relationships, romantic relationships, and uh, that we lock off our hearts and that we don't experience all kinds of love and that we, um, that we don't experience families of our own and that we take that all in faith that somehow that will bring us our greatest amount of happiness. It's a lot that this church is asking our LGBTQ members. It really is. And so I'm not saying that they don't have the authority to do that or the right. I'm just saying take that into consideration when you're listening to these people here. Consider what that would mean to you if you were being asked to do the same thing and see how easy that would be for you to implement in your life. And in so doing, I would hope that you would be and remain open to personal revelation of the individual, that if they receive confirmation in their own personal revelation, to live their life a specific way, whether that be with another man or another woman, or whether they do that uh, uh, singly alone or in a mixed orientation marriage, that you respect their own personal revelation and that you support them and you celebrate their life the way that they deserve and with the love and the care that they deserve. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that in my, uh, my own path, I, I find forgiveness to be key. I want to speak to the LGBTQ community for a moment and just say that forgiveness is important. We've been hurt 
we've been minimalized. But we need to recognize that it it's not where you begin, it's where you end that's important. We need to let go of some of these hurts and some of these pains. We need to give people another chance when they're asking for it and when they want it. And I think that that will help us. I think that will help us and them. So I hope that we'll see a lot of forgiveness in the future. And I also hope that we'll see that uh, there will be a lot of a lot of successful building of these relationships and the, and an active listening because of it. The respect is important. Um, I think that avoiding using examples from the pulpit, um, saying brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so is doing this or that or the other with their life because their LGBTQ is a very dangerous position to be in as a leader and as that person it puts a lot of weight on them. What if they fail? Um, and, you know, we don't, again, we're all snowflakes. So trying to pigeonhole someone into uh, one way of, of living and one frame of, of thinking just doesn't seem right. So I hope that leaders will avoid doing that. And in, in being open to personal revelation, I hope that you'll consider that as controversial as the LGBTQ issues are, that the Book of Mormon doesn't recite one single verse about homosexuality. Not one. Not one single one. It's our most perfect book of scripture in the Mormon church, yet not one single scripture mentions it. How could it be this controversial and this problematic and we not have some guidance there and my heart tells me that there's a reason for this it tells me that there is possibly we need to use the the spirit to guide us that we can't be told about everything in every way and that we need to use the spirit to guide us in leading us down the road to a path of, of true, which showing Christ's true love, and that we need to make exceptions to the rules that we have in our own minds. There was an exception where Nephi was slaying Laban and wondered why he was being commanded to slay Laban. He didn't understand it, but he, he recognized the Spirit was telling him to do this through personal revelation. Please be open to that. Please, please, please be open to revelation. And within the article of faith, uh, the 13th article of faith, uh, I, I hold true to my heart a lot of things where, there's, where it says there, if there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. And in my own existence, I found those in some very non-conventional ways. 
Um, my friends, my family, they all laugh, but I find RuPaul to be incredibly inspiring and very helpful in my, in my, my strengths of, of looking at my, my own weaknesses and strengths. And one of her quotes is, it's none of my business what you think of me. And I want you to think about what that means for you and, and, and that it's not necessarily something that's coming at you but maybe something that you can avoid. Because if you say it's none of my business what you think of me, so please don't hurt me, it means something very real. And it allows us to open up and it allows us to identify that we're all humans and we can all be hurt. We all want to hope that you know we're strong enough that those things don't hurt us in the end, but we are all human and we all we all bleed. So um I I, I, I want to close, Richard, I know it's gone on a long time. I'm so sorry if it's this is gone good. on too long, but it's... I want to close with my testimony. These things are hard. They're hard for everyone. And I can testify today that I know God loves me for who I am as a gay man. I testify God wants me to be happy and have a fulfilling life in this life and the hereafter. I testify that God wants me to find love and compassion and companionship and that he is okay if I find it with another man. I testify that the Spirit of God exists in all relationships. It can be in all relationships, and whether they're in gay families, mixed orientation marriages, single parent families, etc. And I believe that Jesus is my personal Savior and Redeemer. I testify that the atonement of Christ was never meant to fix me from being gay, but to fight that monster in my head and tell me that I am not less than, that I am loved as a gay man. And I'm very grateful for it. I'm grateful for the lessons I've learned. I'm grateful for the people who have so lovingly gotten me here because this did not happen alone. <clears throat> and I'm so grateful for my family and my friends who support me and celebrate me today. Um, we talked about a little bit before the discussion about my involvement in the Mormon church, I can only tell you that currently it's like a fire. Um, I get close to the Mormon church and I feel the warmth and I feel the love, but I'm also very intimately familiar with the burn when you get too close. And so because of PTSD issues and things, I have to be careful about how much I involve myself. But I never want anyone to take that personally, never. I want people to understand it for what it is. I appreciate their love and their inclusion and their invitations. I also hope they can respect where my limits have to lie. Um, and that I... I appreciate everything that everyone has done 
to make me feel more comfortable in the Long Beach East Steak especially. Um, I hope everybody gets this chance. I wish it on everyone who has gone through any LGBTQ experience because it really has been a very special experience. I'm so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful for you, Richard Osler. Thank you so much for this time. I, I really appreciate it. This has been a really moving podcast, Scott. I've had tears in my eyes, and I think our listeners have had tears in their eyes. And um, I just sense, you know, somebody across the table with great spiritual maturity, emotional maturity that's been stretched and torn and bruised. And I just, we're glad you're alive. I'm glad that of all the, and I see all the contributions you're giving to society in all the different ways you're serving. I'm grateful for what's going on Long Beach East Steak. I do think about that steak a lot, and, and I think we're at a time in our church where we can scale stuff like that. I had a really tender experience with a steak president from a, that he didn't know about the Long Beach East Steak, but he just recognized that he has members that are LGBTQ and feels the mantle of wanting to minister to them. He asked me for a priesthood blessing that he would know how to do this in his state because he just felt called. And he knows it's complicated. Um, and he knows, but he feels the mantle of the responsibility to his own people that are LGBTQ and recognize we have to do what President Ballard said, we have to do better than we have been in the past until all feel a spiritual home. And I think that's recognizing, as you're pointing out very accurately, some of the things that we've done in the past that have not been helpful. And I think we learn from the past, We and it helps us do better. And you've done, and you have this tone, Scott, that's so kind, even in the the opposite of the balm of Gilead, um, and being so loving to people that should have been the safest people for you. Your mom always was, but where a local leader wasn't able to fully do what he needed to do. And you just show love and kindness and understanding. And, you know, I think of Preach My Gospel, Chapter 6, and spirit and the Christ-like attributes. You know, we have a son that just left, and you have those with you, Scott, and you've been refined in a wonderful, difficult way. Um, but, I, you know, on behalf of all our listeners, we love you. We're glad you're alive. Thank you for the things you're sharing us. What's the best way for people to find you? I know you're on Facebook. That's Scott Osmond. Is that the best way to message you on Facebook? Or um, do you, you want can, to give out or, any other contact information? Sure. You can also reach me at Scott Osmond, S-C-O-T-T-O-S-M-O-N-D at msn.com. Okay. Thank you, Scott Osmond. Thank you, President First, Michael Sechrist, all the uh, – I forgot the wonderful lady that messaged me about you too. <laughs> There's a lot of – people to thank in this podcast for what's going on um, and all the good people trying to do better. So those of you that are part of the Long Beach East Stake and sister stakes around there supporting what's going on, pray for your continued success and that more and more people feel the balm of Gilead for what you're accomplishing. And thank our listeners for joining us on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.